Log Talk Radio. <laughs> to you live from the EAL radio show studio in St. Augustine, Ponte Vedra, Florida. We're halfway between St. Augustine and Jacksonville. Thanks for listening to the Eastern Airlines Talk Radio. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show, and we have a great show again for you tonight. And to all of our listeners around the world, we say welcome. Jim Hart, are you with us? Hello, Eastern family and friends around the world. It's great having you with us. My name is Jim Hart, coming to you live from the beautiful West Palm Beach area of Florida. We're known as uh, a golf capital, I guess, of the world. And uh, we have uh, probably 150 golf courses right nearby. And... Today, we have the beautiful weather. It's 83 degrees. Hey, you folks up there in, uh, uh, let me see, near the Great Lakes and over in uh, maybe Minnesota and uh, the Dakotas, come on down and enjoy it with us. Welcome and thank you for listening and calling the show. You have truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. In fact... We can now say we become Eastern Airlines International Radio Show because we love to hear your comments and share your memories with radio listeners from around the world. I understand that during our broadcast, we may be reaching as many as 40 countries around the world. If you haven't called the show before, All you need to do is to call 213-816-1611 and just say hello to talk with us on the air live. We can identify many countries around the world who listen in with our blog talk radio application. Isn't it great that we can keep the Eastern legacy going out not only to the Eastern family but to listeners from many different countries around the world. That's what we try to do every week on the EAL Radio Show. Won't you join us by adding your voice to those broadcasts? Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on our homepage 
at www.ealradioshow.com or perhaps by signing in at the site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Should you wish to talk during our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number, 213-816-1611 at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Let me repeat the number so you can write it down for your Monday night visits. And, by the way, tell your friends about us, too. That number is 213-816-1611. And don't forget you can listen to any of our 407 Monday night broadcasts and the 75-plus Thursday afternoon broadcast by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie and scrolling down to the archive of broadcasts. Each episode is briefly described. We're getting close to five. We are in our eighth year of radio broadcasting. Holy Blue Sunoco. Our lines are always open for calls, and if you choose not to participate and talk live with our host, we ask that you please mute your phone as our producer does not have the capability of filtering out any background noises. Hey, I see we're num- Let's get flight number 407 in the air. Tower Blur is 650 volt.
Industry identifies 12 human factors, Chris and the Dirty Dozen, which are human factors. Elements that degrade people's ability to perform effectively and safely could lead to maintenance errors. The Dirty Dozen posters were developed, uh, which provided information and guidance to maintenance personnel all over the world to identify and prevent these Dirty Dozen factors. Safety nets were also introduced so that the appropriate mechanisms can be put into place to prevent human errors. Why human factors in maintenance, we question. Studies and analysis have shown that maintenance is a larger contributor factor, is a large contributing factor in, in accidents. For example, in an analysis done by Boeing in 1995, 15% of commercial accidents between 1982 and 1991 had maintenance as a large contributing factor. In an aircraft hangar, a typical maintenance environment would involve a myriad of difference, different and difficult tasks simultaneously going on while personnel are working on the aircraft. Numerous human factors issues involved World would include maintenance personnel having to work on aircraft structures in confined spaces or at high heights in coordination needed amongst various team members, which was essential. These factors, coupled with high noise, environmental, and late-night hours, and I can attest to that. I worked nine years for, at nights, uh, whilst having make sure that their jobs are meticulously done, uh, contribute to a high probability of mistakes and hence accidents. The cost of not adhering to proper maintenance guidelines is heavy and avoidable, and three 
findings in an article titled Human Factors Beyond the Dirty Dozen can attest to that. And one example is a jet's left engine was exploded on takeoff. Metal pieces flew into the cabin, killed two passengers. Delta's maintenance inspectors missed a crack during an inspection, the NTSB ruled. Fatalities were two, injuries were two, and serious to minor were three. In accordance with the FAA, about 80% of the maintenance mistakes involved human factors, and if not detected, would lead to accidents. According to a research a researcher, Alan Hobbs, in an Australian Transport Safety Bureau report, the cost of canceling a Boeing 747-400 flight can cost an airline $140,000, with delays at the gate costing $17,000 per hour off the company's revenues, thus depicting the high cost of delays and flight cancellations. The FAA manual also states that ramp incidents wreaked $5 billion worth of damage worldwide in 2004. Chuck, would you let some of our listeners know what uh, some of these dirty dozen uh, maintenance items are? Yeah, we can um, check on those. First one would be a lack of communication. You want to use logbooks to communicate, to remove doubt, discuss work to be done, what has been completed to the one taking over from you. Never assume anything. Always check. Complacency. Train yourself to expect to find a fault and to consistently look out for those faults or hazards. Never sign anything that you didn't do. Never assume anything. Always check. Lack of knowledge. Don't delay or rely on memory. Consult the relevant up-to-date manuals. Always ask if you're in doubt. Get training on that type. Think of what might occur in the event of an accident. Check to see if your work will conflict with existing modifications of repair. Ask others if they've seen any problem with the work done by checking periodically to ensure correct work procedures. Distractions. Always finish the job or unfinish the connection. Document and handing over the others or always go back three steps by yourself using a detailed checklist. Lack of teamwork. Discuss what, who, and how the job is to be done. Be sure that everyone understands and agrees through good communication, good coordination with teamwork and all your team members. Look out for one another. Fatigue. Discuss, discuss it with somebody. Ask fellow workers to monitor your work. Exercise your body. Ensure sufficient rest at all times. Beware of the symptoms and look for them in yourself and others. Plan to avoid complex tasks when you're physically exhausted. Sleep and exercise regularly. Ask others to check your work. And if you're fatigued, take a break. Lack of resources. Check suspected areas at the beginning of the inspection. Order and stock anticipated parts before they are required. Know all available part sources and arrange for pooling or maybe loaning. Maintain a standard if it's in doubt on the, on the grounded airplane. Preserve all equipment through prior maintenance. Pressure. Refuse to compromise your standards. All, 
allow team members to give their opinion, accept criticism in a positive nature. Lack of assertiveness. Be assertive. Provide clear feedback when danger is perceived. If not critical, record it in the journal log book and only sign for what is serviceable. Stress. Be wary of the effect of stress on your performance. Stop and look rationally at the problem. Determine a rational course of action and follow it. Take time off or at least a short break. Lack of awareness. Be aware of what has been done, what must be done, and check with others that have been assigned to the task and what is yet to be done. Check the logbook and check with others all the time. Norms. Always comply with definite work procedures. Be aware that norms don't always make it right. Jim? Yeah, Chuck. Uh, here's some aircraft management accidents that one or two or more than dirty dozen maintenance, uh, dirty dozen, have played a part. Here's one. The right engine exploded as the jet accelerated at takeoff. The pilot stopped the jet and passengers evacuated. But shrapnel still severed a fuel line and burning jet fuel engulfed the captain. Cabin, excuse me. National Transportation Safety Board investigators traced the problem to a crack in an engine fan blade that should have been detected during an engine overhaul four years earlier. The accident was blamed on the overseer's maintenance facility that had done the work. No deaths, one serious, six minor injuries in that one. And about 20 minutes after leaving Atlanta, a blade on the left propeller broke loose. This is a prop plane. The damaged airplane crash landed in a field and caught fire. The NTSB found that the Hamilton Standard propeller, which made the blade, had not adequately inspected it for damage. Fatalities. Eight injuries, 13 serious, eight minor. And about six minutes after takeoff from Miami, a fire broke out in the cargo hold beneath the cabin. The pilots attempted to return for an emergency landing, but crashed into a swamp. Everybody on board died. Seems devices that produce oxygen when a jet loses cabin pressure had been removed from another jet as part of a maintenance project. The so-called oxygen generators were improperly loaded as cargo. Investigators ruled that one or more of the devices spewed poor oxygen and triggered the fire. The NTSB blamed the crash on baggage jet. It was baggage jet. And a firm that it had hired to perform maintenance saber tech. The NTSB also cited the Federal Aviation Administration's failure to require smoke detection and fire suppression in the cargo holds. Fatalities. 110 killed. And here's another one. The jet's left engine exploded on takeoff. Metal pieces flew into the cabin and killed two passengers. Delta's maintenance inspectors missed the crack during an inspection to the NTSB roof. There were two fatalities, a correction, two injuries, two serious, and some minor ones. Another one, mechanics trying to fix a leak instead disabled one of the jet's entire hydraulic systems, the NTSB said. Pilots discovered the problem shortly after takeoff and switched to a backup system. But the backup failed after landing and the jet skidded off the runway into a stop, a ditch. Only 13 minor injuries. Another one, the plane's nose shot skyward. I'm not sure who wrote this. After takeoff, despite the pilot's attempt to level off, 
The planes went out of control and hit the ground near the runway, killing everybody on board. NTSB investigators discovered that the device that raises and lowers the plane's nose had improperly been adjusted in the maintenance shortly before the accident. I guess they were talking to the stabilizer trim. A full load of patches and cargo excavated the condition, and the NTSB has not concluded what caused the crash, although sources familiar with it investigation said it involved revolved around maintenance. There were 21 killed. And another one, Charlotte at Douglas International Airport, Charlotte, North Carolina, Air Midwest Airlines Beach 900D, 1900D. Planes no shot scoured again. Despite takeoff, after takeoff, despite the pilot's attempt to level it off, the plane went out of control and hit the ground near the runway, killing everyone on board. Once again, the NTSB investigators discovered that the device that raises and lowers the plane's nose, that's the stabilizer trim, had been improperly adjusted in maintenance shortly before the accident. A full load of passengers and cargo expected it. They didn't have all killed, 21. NTSB report on accident. NTSB website, August 27, 2003, Golden Air Beach, 1900D. The plane, on its first flight after maintenance work, crashed as the pilots attempted to return for an emergency landing. No passengers were aboard because the pilots were planning to move the airplane to Albany, New York, for the first flight of the day. A major focus of the investigation is whether the maintenance on a component that raises and lowers the plane nose, I'm not sure who wrote all this, that raises and lowers the plane nose, the trims, I guess, could have done, been done improperly. One of the pilots radioed a cryptic emergency message that suggested they had problems with the same system. Two pilots were killed. Don? Uh, Jim, here are some more. Um, on August 12, 1985, suffered mechanical failures 12 minutes into the flight and 32 minutes later crashed into two ridges of Mount Takamahara, Japan. A photograph taken from the ground some time later confirmed that the vertical stabilizer was missing. The aircraft was involved in a tail strike accident back in Osaka International Airport on June 1978 which damaged the aircraft's rear pressure bulkhead. The subsequent repair of the bulkhead did not conform to Boeing's approved repair methods. The procedure calls for one continuous double plate with three rows of rivets to reinforce the damaged bulkhead, but the Boeing technicians fixing the aircraft used only two separate double plates with one of two rows of rivets and one with only one row. This reduced the, the part resistance to metal fatigue by 70%. When the bulkhead gave way, the resulting explosive decompression ruptured, ruptured the lines of all four hydraulic systems. With the aircraft's control surfaces disabled, the aircraft became uncontrollable. The root cause of the accident, again, was a maintenance-related failure. On December 19, 2005, Chalks Flight 101 lost its right wing shortly after takeoff and plunged into the shipping channel of Miami Beach, Florida. The plane, which burst into flames, 
was captured on video during the final moments. Everyone on board was killed, including three infants. The cause of the accident was a metal fatigue failure in the right wing initiated by a crack. The crack had then been detected and seemingly repaired earlier by the maintenance team, but the repair eventually proved to be ineffective. The safety board, in its final report on the probable cause of the crash, noted numerous maintenance-related problems on the plane and another aircraft company, aircraft, raising questions about Chalk's ocean maintenance practices. The NTSB found evidence of improper repairs and undocumented maintenance. After the accident, the remaining fleet was found to be suffering from severe corrosion with many showing signs of substandard repair during maintenance. Alaska Airlines Flight 261 plunged into the Pacific Ocean during a routine flight from Puerto Vallarta, Mexico to Seattle-Tacoma Airport. The cause of the accident was the loss of the airplane pitch control caused by failure of the jack screw assembly controlling the horizontal stabilizer trim. Failure of these Acme nuts threads was a result of insufficient lubrication of the jack screw assembly by the Alaskan Airlines during preventive maintenance schedules, despite the airline's paperwork indicating it had been done. This was a result of Alaska's extended lubricating maintenance and inspection intervals. American Airlines Flight 191, a DC-10, crashed moments after takeoff from O'Hare Airport in Chicago. Excuse me. Moments earlier, while speeding down the runway, engine number one and pylon structure separated from the wing, flipped over the top, and fell onto the runway. The airplane took off, but shortly after takeoff, the aircraft rolled left and nose pitched down before crashing into the nearby field. The root cause of the accident was maintenance-induced damage leading to the separation of the number one engine and pylon assembly procedures, which led to failure of the pylon structure. The mounting of the pylon had been damaged during routine maintenance performance eight weeks previous. American Airlines, without approval of the aircraft manufacturer, McDonnell Douglas, removed the engine pylon as one unit during the engine change using a forklift. The airline maintenance team modified the recommended engine and pylon replacement procedure to save man hours and get the job done quicker. The pylon, the rigging holding the engine onto the wing, had been damaged during the makeshift maintenance procedure. The dirty dozen factors have long since been identified, but as can be seen from the example of accidents, it has contributed above. It's still not been fully eradicated in the realm of aviation maintenance. It is imperative that maintenance organizations inculcate a working environment that reiterates these factors holistically so that they are ingrained in the maintenance personnel. This can be done through human factors, training, workshops, 
by reiterating these factors and showing the aviation accidents they have caused. It is by creating a culture in which all personnel are aware of these factors and the safety nets involved. This would help decrease the high percentage of human factors involved in maintenance issues. Do any of our hosts or listeners have their own experience or experiences with a maintenance problem you would like to share? Oh, yes. Oh, I'd love to. Okay, let's start. Well, this is Chuck. And I'd like to go back to one of our, that we had uh, talked about, was the oxygen generators and the company was ValueJet, and they were using the eastern hangar that the 1011s used to be in uh, with a secondary company uh, that moved the devices into the uh, cargo compartment, and unfortunately, they did not safety these uh, generators like they were supposed to, and of course, they banged around, and pretty soon, the little pins fell out, and the thing... um, started to operate like they were supposed to, and they get very, very hot because we, we've had that problem when we took them out. My, my question is, is, a lot of these secondary and uh, third um, world companies and, and, and pieces of, of, of airline mechanics don't even have an AMP license. They work under the theory, especially here in the United States, that if you have an AMP license, let's say, and you're a supervisor, you're allowed to supervise, I think, up to, uh, used to be 11 people with no license. And that's how they got away with getting unlicensed mechanics to work on airplanes. Now, we're seeing all over the world that things are happening especially outside the United States, that makes me feel that this problem is going to get worse because now we don't even have the A&P mechanics out there that can watch the other 11 people. So what you have is non-maintenance trained people uh, that probably worked on their cars or trolley car or something and decided that he'd go work on an airplane because it made more money. And I think this is what we see here. As time goes by, you're going to see more accidents because of lack of training. I don't know how the other guys feel about it. I think Lion Air in Ethiopia uh, is is actually a a thing where we could have had people trained and had them out with the manual, show them what to do, Neil uh, showed us a very good um, um, thing on our, our 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 thing that we got tonight. And it tells about how what exactly happened about the switches in the cockpit. Those those uh, three airlines that we've been talking about, it, they were unavoidable accidents. People were thinking, well, that's not true. They were all unavoidable. All they had to do was flip two switches, and they wouldn't have had the problem. Now that was lack of training on on pilots, and and they. But you get the same thing with mechanics. You get mechanics out there who work on airplanes who have not gone to schools and got A and P license, 
you know, it, it takes a while to go through a school, and it costs quite a bit of money. So this uh, is why they end up getting people without A&P license. I don't know how Chuck, you other guys think about it, but I'm really but, hot about this. Well, I want to ask Chuck and Mike, both of you, uh, have been uh, uh, A&P mechanics with uh, major airline, of course, Eastern Airlines. Uh, in the days of the propeller or reciprocating engine uh, engines, when something happened to an engine and you had to change a jug, uh, it took uh, a lot of knuckle power and uh, elbow grease and everything else to change that. And I have I had an experience out in Hawaii when uh, I was a director of flight operations for a cargo outfit out there, and I eventually quit because of maintenance. It was it, it wasn't there, uh, and not necessarily because of the mechanics. They were uh, licensed, of course, but uh, they weren't given the uh, the uh, the uh, the parts, the material, uh, when something happened to those radial engines that we were using, uh, and uh, they they took things off the shelf that were not uh, actually tagged to be reusable, and you guys know what I'm talking about. But my question is to both of you guys. Is jet engines uh, a lot cleaner, a lot easier to work on than uh, a three thirty-three fifty engine, a thirty-three sixty engine? Thirty-three fifty with a PRT, yeah. There you go. And what do you guys? Uh, uh, is it very difficult to do, or do you just change out a part? You take it off, put something back on or if it's electronics you take the board out and you send it to be repaired and all you're doing is taking off and putting on yep is that round, round engine guys are a special breed you, you, you really have to know what you're doing with that stuff and uh you get involved with that you better get into the books and uh have had some experience or be working with somebody with experience on them because they are very complex, and I mean, you have the seven-cylinder radials, you have nine-cylinder radials, and then you have rows of seven and nine. Your 3350s, your 2800s, your 2600s, rights, and 4360s, and and the more more cylinders, the more complex they get, especially with magnetos and timing and exhausts and intake pipes and cam rings and all the rest of it it's a very uh complex days, yeah. deal to to work on those round engines and they, they're not easy to work on and they and if, if they don't if everything's not uh, put together properly and you're going to turn that over uh you're going to have some problems with that because uh, the pieces all will start instead of going in unison they're going to start going in opposite directions so it's uh it can be very, uh, very complicated. I, uh, I'm not. A, I don't consider myself an expert on round engines because I didn't really do a whole lot of work on those. But I do see a lot of it at the small airports here since I've been retired, because uh, there's a lot of, you know, biplanes with the old Continental 220s on them, seven-seven cylinder radials like I have on my, on my airplane. And when I've done some work on that, on that airplane as a mechanic, I, I. Uh, I don't try to get in there and do it myself. I grab one of the guys, one of the other fellows that's worked on the engines, 
and uh, I get a little bit of uh, insight in what's going on, and we have the manuals laying out there. And this way here, you go step by step and put all that stuff together, and, and most of the time you're going to be okay with that. But uh, this is why I think eventually uh, these people with A&E and a and licenses, as you call them back in the old days, their A&P licenses now, with all this complex uh, electronics on the engines, and the complexity of the engines themselves and the airplanes and the airframe, there's, I, I think of what's going to happen is the, uh, it's going to be like a pilot's license where you have a type rating on your license for a specific airplane. Uh, I think that eventually they're going to have, a, for an airframe or a power plant, they're going to have, uh, if you're a power plant mechanic, say, uh, you, they're going to have a specific engines that you will be able to get checked out on, and then you'll have that rating on the license to be able to work on that. So this Absolutely. way here, you you have the the, and then yeah. you can have the help, but you have the schooling and the rating on that to show other people how to work on it. This it's too oh general God. now with all the complexity that's yeah. going on. So hey, I don't want to ramble uh, on forever, but you know. yeah, Mike, I've got a Erico two two four. I think's been uh, uh, making uh, affirmative uh, uh, sounds there. Uh, are you? Uh, uh, yes, uh, who who Hello? do we have there? Yeah, from Chicago. My name is Harold Fish. Hello. Yeah, go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah, my name is Harold Fisher. I'm 40, 40 years in line maintenance at O'Hare. Most of it with Eastern and then Northwest and a couple others. I bankrupted all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, you, you guys are talking. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You guys are talking, and you know, I hate to say it, but I work for one charter outfit, non-union, which a bunch a bunch of ex-Eastern guys were in the cockpit, and I was wrenching. In fact, I was the first mechanic hired by him. You might even remember the, the name Private Jet. Yeah, I think I do private, recall Private Jet. Private Jet Expeditions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was an old 727. They they blew two engines going out of Newark one time. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. I was the second mechanic hired by him. Oh, you were the second mechanic <laughs> hired? Talk about a nightmare. Private jet expedition. Out. Right, exactly. Yeah, well, we wound up with a bunch of MD-80s. Wow. Wow. But it was it was a nightmare. You talk about crazy maintenance. I started out at O'Hare taking care of two airplanes with a panel truck, a ladder, and two cases of oil. Oh, <laughs> Not a case of beer. <laughs> I told, and I was told if I need, I'm serious. I'm told if I needed any parts to go to American, because I was real good friends with a bunch of guys at American, and they could pass me some parts underneath the table or something. I mean, not parts, but parts we had to pay for, but decals and all the other crap, I had buddies that helped me out. But it was a nightmare. But yeah. when you need work, that's what you do. Yeah. Well, you know, as an A&P mechanic, it's like my dad used to say, he was a captain with Eastern Airlines, and every time he got a new rating, he would tell me he's got an, another learner's permit. And the same thing goes for an A&P license. When you get that A&P license, that doesn't mean you're qualified to work on everything perfectly. It means you've got a no. learner's permit. And as long as you yeah, know how, 
and know the right people and you got the right books to do the job, you can you can probably get it done with enough help because you're not going to usually do it all by yourself. Yeah. So absolutely not. Absolutely, and it's good to have friends on the airport that help you out. But I tell you what, when I worked at Eastern, we had when we first got our airbuses, we were told parked at the gate. We had a hangar, and we were told we had no training on it. We were told, well, don't worry about it. You won't have to go off the gate. You won't have to taxi because none of us were trained on it. I didn't even know how to open a damn door. So one night, sure enough, you got to get that airplane to the hangar. Myself and two other guys went in the cockpit and started throwing switches. And oh look, we got some, we got some N1. Oh oh look, we need some fuel. Honest to God, we taxied an A300 to the hangar with zippity doo dah training. Now is that scary? It is if you run into something. Uh, Jim Holder, let me ask you, have you had uh, any problems with uh, taking an aircraft and having a maintenance problem? Uh, did you say Jim Holder? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I've been sitting here listening, listening to this, and I thought about this show for about the last two days, and I'm trying to think where I've got, to, you know, 31 years with airlines, 20,000 hours and all that. There's got to be something. And you know what? I can tell you about war stories all over the place, but I could not come up with what I considered was a maintenance problem. I don't know. Maybe I've just been lucky. I've been unlucky in a lot of agent fires and such, but uh, not a maintenance problem than you are. But I finally remembered one, and I may have talked about it on this radio show before. When I was an engineer on the Electra, and we were going to Miami to Washington to Kennedy. And it was a late-night departure. And, of course, I was the guy out running around the airplane, looking at everything, came in, told the captain, maintenance is out there working on number four engine. And I said, oh. He said, yeah, well, what are they doing? I said, oh, I don't know. So I went out there and asked them, and they mumbled something to me. And I came back in, and they all I know is they said they'd be ready in about an hour. Well, so we sat in the cockpit, and he had talking. We talked, and the captain was uh, somebody that uh, was in Clarity to fly with. So we sat there, and. All of a sudden, mechanics came in and said, well, we're finally ready to go, Captain. You're ready to go. Let's shut the door. Let's go. He said, okay. So we shut the door. We told a few switches and cranked that electric up, and we hauled butt for Washington National. It was a late-night flight, and we landed. And me being the flight engineer, I go out there, and I walk around the airplane. And I looked up at number four engine and didn't have a cow. I said, now, I know this ain't right. It's supposed to be something. I'm looking at all the innards up there, you know, valves yep. and switches and pipes and wires. And I went back and told the captain, I said, we don't have a complete airplane here, Captain. So he went out there and looked at it, and he said, yep, we're missing something. And I said, God, what are we going to do? You know, was I supposed to go out there and make sure the mechanic shut the cowling? And uh, I was thinking, you know, I was off probation, but I was still worried about it. And he said, well, I'll call. I got a friend up there in Kennedy, and I'll call him up and tell him what we got. He'll be waiting when we get there. So we threw a few more switches, and we flew up to Kennedy and landed there about midnight. And the captain said, you know, you might want to go out and look at that number four engine and see if you're missing it. <laughs> he said, well, I don't think this plane is going to go out early tomorrow morning. It ripped the hinges and everything off. So I don't know if they, they just didn't shut it or didn't shut it right or what. I don't know. And I got to tell you, I've been sitting here thinking, listening to all of this, and I maybe I've been lucky, but 
I cannot come up with something where I could really throw darts at a mechanic. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That sounds good to me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, uh, sometimes. Uh, go ahead, Howard. I said, I'm sure I signed off his airworthiness a couple times. <laughs> yeah, that you did. I, I got to uh, tell you a quick story, and then I'll shut up. I'm pushing yeah. out a, a DC-9 out of O'Hare, and the captain called. He said, I got a problem here, and I I ran up the air stairs, and he had a chart holder, you know, a chart holder right in the middle of the yoke, and it was dangling by the wires. I said, well, he said, just, you know, just tie it up, whatever. And he said, you know, I'll write it up when I get to Atlanta. So I said, okay, hell. And I ran back to, to the, my little toolbox and grabbed some safety wire. And I tied it up and got it, you know, ready to go. It's not dangling. And I jumped back in the tug and I said, breaks off. And the captain says, you know, come back here. He said, I don't think this is going to work. So I ran back, I ran back up and I, I had wired his, his yoke. He couldn't turn his aileron. <laughs> I, I wired a damn thing right around the yoke. <laughs> well, this could happen. <laughs> yeah, right. That would have been a nice crash investigation. Oh, there's wired. <laughs> but anyway, he was a good sport, and I, I just, I, I my heart stopped. That what? <laughs> that's what happens when you're in a hurry, you know. Yeah. All right. Well. I- well, you could you could you could talk about maintenance stories all night long. I mean, I in my corporate field, uh, flying around, we we were all. Uh, I mean, uh, I had a flight engineer, and I was a flight engineer, and I did when I was the A and P. I got involved with the work, but uh, and I fortunately had a couple of guys that would help me hold the light or whatever. But then, uh, then I would as I moved up through the seats uh, to the left side. Uh, you know, whenever I, we had a problem with the airplane, which we didn't have too many problems, but it would always be in Timbuktu somewhere, and yeah. I'd be out there because I was an AP licensed mechanic, and uh, so I would hope, I would always hang around with the engineer until we got everything done, and that That's, was yeah. uh, you know many times around in the pouring rain with hydraulic fluid going in your eyes with a flashlight <laughs> stuck in your mouth trying to get oh, the yeah. nut nut cross threading and all that stuff at two o'clock in the morning. It though on the, on the ramp in St. Petersburg or something, you know, and <laughs> one of those things. It goes on and on. Uh, let me uh, ask you what? guys, uh, Howard and and uh, uh, Chuck and Mike, uh, have you have you been close uh, in your shop or in out on the line working maintenance and uh, changing out this or that or the other? Have you ever been close to a major accident or uh, knew of uh, some uh, crew or whatever? Uh, oh, yeah, sure. I, I had an episode one time I was working with some new guys, and they were doing a uh, – we were doing an e-check on a 727, and I was the relief lead that night. And This is at Kennedy. And the uh, the guys are getting ready to uh, they, they change the oil filter, so we got to run the engine and make sure that the uh, no, there's no leaks. Well, meanwhile, the guys are going to run the uh, they wanted to run I forgot right now whether it was the one, number one or the number three engine, but in the meantime, they had the guys were still working on the on the number two engine. The cowlings were open, and these guys were going to run one and three engine with the cowling and number two open. 
Well, oh. it, it's clear. I mean, the jet blast will go by it, but the suction from that will lift the cowling oh. right off, and it'll take it over, and it'll park it in the United Airlines parking lot or <laughs> in the American Airlines, either one. So I had cut They I heard him start getting ready to start the engine. So I, I took my flashlight and I, I was doing across my throat to cut it from the cockpit, you know. <laughs> so they stopped the start, and I said, "Well, that's a that's a, that's the one save that we had." <laughs> But we could go on with this for for hours. So I mean, it's, uh, well, we've got a few more minutes, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell my war story. Yeah, I told it before, and that I was got a few after years you, back. Neil. I got one. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not uh, I'm not uh, in the cockpit uh, in this instance. I'm out in Hawaii, uh, in paradise, and uh, uh, director of flight operations for Hawaii Pacific Airlines. And now keep in mind, Hawaii Pacific is a 135 and a 121 operator carrier. And uh, I'm the uh, flight uh, director of flight operations. And uh, we had two DC-4s converted into uh, uh, cargo air, airplanes that no, the nose actually swiveled. And we had a ramp that uh, you could uh, take the cargo from the nose and put it in and Sir Freddie Laker is the one that invented that as a matter of fact it was called Carver uh, DC-4 Carver you guys may remember that airplane and uh, so here I have got two of these airplanes and I have uh, two uh, Cessna caravans that's my 135 operation so uh, I'm always having problems out there with the uh, round engines with the mechanics because these mechanics are, they're real happy with the turboprop uh, caravans, but they're not too happy with these round radial 2000 engines, R2000s, which we had on the DC-4. And uh, I was always having problems, uh, especially uh, trying to start the things. You know, they'd get over to Maui and overnight in Maui and, and try to start it the next morning, and all the uh, moisture would collect in the in the collector ring uh, for the spark plugs, and uh, they couldn't get a, they couldn't get it started, you know. So we started. I started putting mechanics on the airplane on the DC fours to go with the pilots and the cargo, because this was happening. This is routine. Well, one dark stormy night, uh, I'm real happy in my condo in Waikiki. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I wish I hadn't quit now. The more I talk about this, but at any rate. Uh, <laughs> Uh, real happy with this thing. My wife is sitting over here laughing. She remembers when I was out in Hawaii. But uh, yeah. uh, one dark, stormy night, uh, my captain on this particular flight to Maui called me about 3 o'clock in the morning, woke me up, and he said, uh, Neil, he said, the airplane is parked here. He said, I quit. I quit. <laughs> And I said, what do you mean you quit? And he says, I've got the airplane on the ground, and I've managed to park the airplane. I'm getting off, and I'm taking Aloha or whatever the carrier was. I think it was Aloha uh, Airline. They they are not in business anymore. But he said, I'm taking it back as soon as I can get on the flight, and that's it. And he told me what had happened. And what had happened is uh, – one of the engines, number two engine, it's a four-engine airplane, uh, 
number two engine uh, had to have a cylinder change. And remember I said earlier, most of the cylinders were reused that should not have been reused because the owner of the airline refused to buy any parts for the airplane or the engine. There you go. So they took uh, another cylinder from somewhere, I don't know where, uh, and they put it on, but uh, they forgot to attach the oil pressure line or the oil line that goes to the feathering of the engine because it's feathered by oil pressure. And so here this guy was coming along, uh, going into Hawaii, uh, to Maui, and uh, number, number one engine had a problem. It had a runaway prop. Now, a runaway prop is pretty bad itself. But uh, and, and he, we reached up to feather the number one engine, and it wouldn't feather. It was a runaway. And the engine froze. That's the next step. You don't have to worry about it. I was just going to say, to the only time you get a runaway freeze. prop on that is if you run out of oil. Well, and it froze. It was frozen yep. solid. Well, number two started giving him problems on that number two engine that had a cylinder change. And oh. um, eventually coming in, it was a rainy night, a rainy night, rainy morning. And he turned his windshield wipers on and no windshield wipers. And it was just absolutely pouring. And number three acting up now. Here's two engines running on the right side of the airplane. No engines on the left side. So he was uh, very fortunate. And, of course, there was just uh, pineapples or whatever the cargo was that uh, he had on board. But it scared the living daylights out of him. Didn't have and any cockpit seat covers ground, to replace him either. Eh? Airplane, and he immediately Our called me, and he said, I quit. And that was <laughs> it. And the very, now here's the rest of the story. The very next day, I wrote a letter of resignation, and I sent it to the owner of the airline, Roberts of Hawaii. Roberts, uh, I don't know if you've been to Hawaii, but uh, Roberts owns all the uh, rabbit buses. They call them the rabbit buses that takes the tourists around, shows them uh, the uh, islands. And I sent it to him, and I immediately went upstairs to the FAA, which was right above our oh. office. Good and I you. gave him the letter that I had sent to Robert. And uh, he said, you know, I was wondering how long you would be here. <laughs> that was that was my POI, my principal operating inspector. He said, I was wondering how long you'd be here. And I said, well, you, mu- you must know the problems I've been. He said, yeah, I heard this last discussion you guys had of the airplane parked over in Maui. And I said, yeah, it's still over there. And I'm not going to be responsible for getting it back. I quit. And the next day, <laughs> they put a flag on the front door, and the airline was shut down. That was it. And I came mm-hmm. home. And I was happy to come home. That's my story. <laughs> hey, Captain Neal, did, did you know the difference between that uh, the R2000, the Pratt and Whitney, and the uh, and the 1830? Oh. Yeah. It was basically the same engine with a, yeah. a, an overboard cylinders is all it was because it was the basic yeah. this was the same engine. Yeah, that's I right. didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got one I... story of maintenance here. It's about a 1011 uh over on the 36th street side. If anybody 
remembers where the 1011 hang was, the big building. And they had some uh, what they call run-up pads. What they were was is you parked a plane, and they had a whole row of cement walling and stanchions coming out of the top of the walling with some more uh, concrete up there, and that was to block the blast from the number uh, two engine. So, and just starting the engines up and taxiing them over the to the to, uh, over to the where they're going to put the people on over there. Uh, that's nothing, you know. The engines are mostly at idle. But they told one of the guys, uh, we there was 12 of us that did the run up and taxi at the time there on 36th Street for all the airplanes that we had. I did mostly 1011s and 727s. Anyway, he started running up that engine, and uh, because they needed it tested, it came out of the engine shop and wasn't tested, and the FAA allowed us to test them on the airplane. Well, it took four hours to do that. If you weren't, you know, there's this procedure. You got a little thick book there, and you got to keep going through it. And one of the places is is you take it up to 105 percent for for 15 seconds, just to make sure everything works. So this young guy, he was he was in the captain's seat, and of course he was doing the running, and of course you keep running them back and forth and everything else. And they when they took it up to 105, he went a little bit longer than he was supposed to. They said he probably ran the engine at about 30 seconds or more, and um, nothing happened to the airplane. But when they got out, this wall that had steel extensions to stick it up higher for the number two engine. He had, he had heated up that, the, um, the two stanchions that hold it in the concrete, which were uh, solid steel. He had made them so hot that when the blast came out, when they went to the 105, whatever it was, it just pushed the top of that whole um, wall over and bent those steel uh, rods that came out of the top of it, and the steel rod was probably about a foot wide and maybe four inches thick. So and, you know they weren't small things because they, they were holding up concrete. And when they all got out of the airplane, the, the guy says, "Gee, I think you held it in, in the takeoff power a little too long." <laughs> so those are things that that. Don't cause accidents, but they do cause problems. Um, obviously, it took them months to get the, the stuff fixed because they had to go back and tear down the concrete and put it all back up with the steel stanchions and stuff. But, well, um, before those we, before we go off time. there, I want to just uh, ask uh, about uh, what you guys, what's your thoughts now that uh, week has gone by, and we've learned a few other things about uh, the Lion Air and Ethiopian uh, airlines. Uh, any any thoughts about uh, what Boeing did uh, or didn't do or what the crew training uh, or didn't train? Uh, any thoughts about uh, what's going on? I still have not heard anything about this system, this, uh, you know, the the uh, augmentation system for that stabilizer, whether that works with or without the autopilot on. Now, of course, if it, it works, works with the auto, only with the autopilot, it's a no-brainer. You shut the switches off and you fly the airplane. 
Yeah. But if it's something, right. something other than that, I've not heard anything saying that it's it only works with the autopilot. So uh, or it only works it works manual without the autopilot. That's I've never heard anything uh, come up about that. That's my point. Well, if you look at Neil's stuff on on uh, on our website, it, it's got a, a really nice presentation on exactly what you're talking about, and. All it takes is flip the two switches off and fly the plane manually. The, United, the people in the United States seem to have got the message. Uh, I think American or whoever has the airplanes, even as uh, some of the other other airlines, what is, is Spirit? Spirit Airline got the yellow and some. No. They, no, they even had the, the the switches in it. But what what I can't understand is is why didn't Boeing? Go ahead and put the light. There's a light that comes on when the left and right um, angle of attack uh, generator, the little vane generators, are out of sync. Because and it tells the pilot that they're out of sync. And he knows to shut the system down or shut it off until they can get it fixed. And why was that not required? Why did you have to pay for it? Because you would have paid for it anyway if it was required. And we, nobody would have ever had this Supposedly it was oh. in their notes, and according to what the FAA said, March 18th, that, uh, and Bowen told the newspaper this, that the FAA reviewed the company's data and concluded the aircraft met all certification and regulatory requirements, and that wasn't regulatory requirement. Well, yeah, I, but bet the problem is, thing, I bet you the FAA let the hell they made the standard equipment on all of them. Right now, why didn't we make yeah. the standard equipment? Yeah, we need that yeah. big red light. Of... That big red light, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, right. It, so you know it, it well. It's very their butt. Now, why did we do you it? Guys, you guys see where China Air is uh, buying 184 Airbus A320s and $18 billion dollars worth yeah. China? Yeah, I saw an article about that. Yeah. All for the lack of a red light. That, that's right. Differential yeah. flight. Mm-hmm. That's a little Absolutely. bit of minor thing. Yeah. One yeah. thing I got I mean, to say about all Neil, if I might, is that uh, some of my friends at ATA that are now flying all over the world, including over there, they had a high, you know, I've heard from them, they've had a, a good thing to say about the Open's pilots, and apparently one of them knew the captain. And he thought that he was highly qualified. But uh, initially they said the co-pilot had 200 hours. I thought maybe they meant 200 hours in the airplane. And now they came out and said, no, he had 400 hours. Now, how many in the airplane, I don't know. But he could have been like, you know, one notch above getting his uh, instrument and uh, commercial. Yeah. I don't know. But he was, now you got the guy out there in the left seat, you got a guy in the right seat that's not doing you any good, most likely. I don't know. Said yeah. 200 hours in the that plane. That's what it said on. Yes, 200 hours in that plane. What a total of 400. Yeah, what was his total hours? Didn't say it, didn't, it was more than that. I forget how mm. many. I don't know how many it was. I can't remember now, but I know it was more than that in the airplanes themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, it'd be a shame if he had 400 hours total flying time. Even if he had 200 hours in an airplane, that no, it wasn't he's 400 not very qualified. Flying. 
It wasn't 400 flying time. Well, uh, these guys got to have some more time. I, I remember when I was a green co-pilot on the 737, and I went to school on that thing. I said I was the safest person around because I said if this airplane ever crashed, I was 15 minutes behind it. So yeah. <laughs> Correct I would me be if saved. I'm wrong, Jim Holder. I, I believe back in the 60s, Eastern hired first officers, uh, co-pilots, we call them back in the day, uh, with uh, 250, 300 hours. That's correct. Do you remember that? The last, yes. The Friend last of mine. issue of the magazine has uh, Neil Holl- I mean, uh, Lee Johnson. And he got hired with uh, just a shade over 200 hours. That's a major article. Yeah. I got his picture in there. He couldn't yeah. believe it. And he's sitting in the engineer's seat of a 727. Turned out to be one of the better pilots we ever had. But he started out. I remember out a living, few of them. I think very minimum mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Good, good friend yeah, of mine was hired. Was hiring people with no hours, and they trained them. July yeah. of 1966, one of my buddies got hired with 220 hours in his logbook, and they put him as a co-pilot in the Connie. At Eastern. No. <laughs> <laughs> he did have his hands full. He went to late 60 without losing a paycheck because he ended up with the shuttle and everything else. So, you know. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so, when they up the minimum hours, what is it? It's close to, what, 1,600 hours? 1,500 well, for an ATP. I mean, that's. Uh, 1,500, yeah. But to be hired, I don't, I don't know what it is to be hired now. Uh, yeah. Which, um, well, you know, the world was, they didn't need to have pilots. The war was going on in Vietnam. The military guys weren't getting out. United was hiring people with no time at all, giving them starting yeah. out, you know, with a private. Uh, they had a whole, one big page in USA Today or something. Says, We're hiring pilots with no flying time. How did they know they were pilots? Wow. sign a contract. For five years. Yeah. That's, when I was in Vietnam in 66, my father sent me the article, said Eastern is hiring. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody lets you come home, though, huh? No. <laughs> this is Jim. I have a question. Yeah, Jim. Dur- during our conversations, someone mentioned a 727 taking off from Newark that blew two engines. What happened to that aircraft? It sat there for a long time before they finally got two new engines for it, and then they flew it out somewhere. I remember it was sitting at Butler Aviation. 727? 727. It sat at Butler Aviation because our airplane was uh, There was two airplanes based there, our airplane and the Forbes airplane, which I ended up flying for a while myself, and private jet expeditions were sitting there, and what happened was they blew, they had blown the uh, the, uh, the one engine, and, the, and it was not contained, and it went, it, the, the one engine took pieces of the number two engine that went up, the pieces went up and went into the intake of, through the intake of number two, and took number two out, so they lost number, I think it was one and two, or uh, two and three. But they had oh, my uh, one of the times they they did that on takeoff going out of Newark and they came back and they 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 got it in okay and it sat there for a uh, for a long time. So he did go around and land. Oh yeah. Okay, that's that was my concern. Thank you. 
Very good. Yeah, they they wow. didn't last very long with that airplane. I'm I had some information on it, but it's not handy with me right now. I knew whose uh. it was and where it went <laughs> and everything else. And so of course it's probably in the scrapyard like all the rest of them. But uh, you know, boy. you know, thinking about my career with Eastern, uh, I, I have only been a, a captain and a first officer on two airplanes that lost engines and uh, one was a Convair where I was the first officer and the second one was uh, an L-1011 and uh, I was first officer on that. I shouldn't say captain but I was first officer on that and we lost an engine on that one but uh, that's that's a pretty good record after so many years of flying. Yeah. Uh, Eastern well, airplanes I, I, and I had a uh, an episode when I was a supervisor at Eastern there, and I happened to be working the terminal, and I'm trying to remember the flight number it was, but uh, I, I I can't recall it. It was 1011 went out of went out of Kennedy, and he lost number uh, what was it number number one engine uh, on the climb out, and they had to go out and dump fuel and come back, and it was a real October blustery windy day. And we went out there in the maintenance truck, and we were watching him uh, come in for the landing. And uh, he came in there, and he just made a beautiful-looking approach, and he touched down, and it looked like there was grease on the runway. It's a beautiful landing and all that. <laughs> and we we followed him to the gate, and the passengers all got off, and, and we went up, and we were talking to the captain and the crew. And, and I forgot the captain's name now, right? It escapes me. But uh, I told him, I said, boy, that was some landing you made, I, I told the captain. And he said, he looked me right in the eye and he says, "You know," he says, "when you got as much time as I have flying and as much experience as I have flying all these airplanes, I says it was real easy." I says, "When that engine blew, I looked over on my right and I says, "You got it, young man." He says, "The co-pilot did the landing." <laughs> I was there to help. <laughs> if he needed the experience, I had it, and he could ask me. But he blew that engine. I mean, we, you could look in one end, and you could be looking, whoever was looking in the back, you could be looking straight at him. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it only hey, takes a quarter inch to do that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Neil, can I give yeah. you a quick update on something? You remember Jim Town's father in that Mexico City, the two-engine ferry, and right at liftoff, he lost number yes. one engine. Number three was on shut down. All he had was number two. Well, he yeah, came to the repo luncheon. I remember that. Uh, the son, Jim Towns, came to the repo luncheon, and he uh, was talking about this. This was about three repo luncheons ago. That's every month in Atlanta. And uh, he's talk, talking about that. I don't know how it came up. And uh, Jack Smith had brought a mechanic friend who's an old guy, uh, obviously, and Jack was one of our retired captains, and when we doing that, uh, talked about it for some reason. Jack said, "Well, I got a big uh, addiction to this story," and he said, "My mechanic, my friend right here, was in Mexico City, and he's the guy that signed off for the Mexicans on that two-engine takeoff." And I mean, we like to drop our guard because here, this is nineteen <laughs> what seventy-four or seventy-two, and this mechanic that was sitting there is the one that saw the whole thing. And he yeah. said that it's true. It blew and made a lot of racket, and all you can see was a dust trail going out across the that lake off the end of the runway, dry bed lake. That's how low it is. He said it looked like it went for 10 miles. They were blowing up dust. And so they got <laughs> it back around and came in and landed. And uh, I thought, that what are the odds of that, that the guy at the Reaper Luncheon yeah. had been down there 30, 40 years ago? 
Boy, that was a really something. What a sequel. What a sequel. Yeah, yeah. Well, we could go on hours talking about yep, uh, flying and maintenance. And, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we had this little discussion tonight. And, uh, Dorothy, what's coming up? Well, we have several good shows that are coming up. Let me give you a rundown of them. Um, next week we have Holy Blue Sunoco. And <laughs> heart can be with us. And the following week after that, we have the big three, Atlanta, Miami, and New York City, being all three airports <coughs> in New York City. And following that's going to be repartee. And then coming up is going to be Eastern's Air Cargo and History of Air Freight. And we have several more after that. So you folks need to stay tuned for all our good shows that are coming up. Uh, I would like to make mention that the contribution we received last week and I need to correct uh, one of the things. We had called him the correction on the sponsor who gave us uh, the, the uh, donation. His name was John Leonard and not Joe, and we do apologize to John for the uh, misspelling of his name. Uh, John has been a member since 2012, and he was on the Eastern System Pilot, a simulator instructor, if people remember, Chuck Airman, Simulator and Aircraft, Air Crew Program designee, and he also was uh, HIMS designee, alcohol and drug in the Houston base. After Eastern, John worked for Vanguard Airlines on B737, and he was the chief check captain, manager of flight tests, airline director of safety. So he's done a number of things. He's worked for Tradeway Winds Airlines, Omni International. He was corporate director of flight operations on the BE-727, the CL-604, G-100, Astra, SP, SVX, Westwind 1 and 2, and Lear 40 and 45, in addition to the current G-100 contract pilot. I don't know if he's still doing the pilot on the G100 or not, and perhaps maybe he would join us someday and tell us more about all the things that he did. We want to, again, uh, thank Reaper for all their contributions to us. We certainly thank our sponsor, and without them, we wouldn't be here today. Uh, on behalf of Neil and all of the entire volunteer hosts, we thank all of our sponsors. We do appreciate them. And remember, the Reaper Eastern Reunion is being held in Atlanta, Georgia. I think it's Kenesaw on September 4th and 5th this year. So please put that on your calendar, and later on there will be lots of information on the Reaper website, as well as our own. We'll put that under the Reaper Convention 2019 on our website. So you have two places that you can check. Uh, and our membership, we have... Uh, people that have joined, we're happy to say that we have 1,014 people. We're growing, and we just thank all of you members for being a part of our Eastern family. So back to you, Neil. Uh, one thing I want to ask Jim Holder about the reunion in Kennesaw. Uh, is it open for everyone? Can just, uh, you know, the Eastern people in Atlanta Flight attendants, maintenance folks, ramp service folks, can they all come out and uh, share some conversation with the, uh, the with the flight crews and whatever? Oh, Lord, yes, absolutely. Anybody <laughs> more Eastern yes. is welcome to come. We look forward to having them. 
They don't have to have a little. They gotta have a little money though, you know, the rooms and all that. But uh, it's well worth it. We're gonna have a good time. And uh, Johnny Steinmetz, our president, is meeting tomorrow with Mr. Big at Embassy Suites, and they're gonna get the final dots and signed and everything uh, ready to go. But it's supposed to be on the third and fourth of September. It's in Kennesaw. It's right outside 285, about five miles on 75. Like you're going to Chattanooga, go five miles and turn right on. Claremont, I think it is, or something like that. And there you are. Beautiful place. That whole area 20 years ago used to be woods and pastures and cows and all that kind of stuff. And now it's grown up. Everything up there is brand new. It's sort of fun to be up there and look around. You know, all and the Jim Holder, the that's where new. That's that's where I kept my Boeing. Stearman, where that is. Uh, <laughs> my Boeing yeah. Stearman. Uh, yeah, that, that uh, airport. Yeah, the airport's not Kennesaw. brand new, but all of that stuff up there, <laughs> yeah. the hotel and everything is. No, the airport, the airport's been there. Is McCollum? Is that the name of it? Yeah, McCollum. Yeah. yeah Where'd that yeah, airplane it's... go, Neil? Well, my partner crashed and killed. Uh, he was killed oh. in 1971 uh, when oh. we owned it. And, uh, I remember that. That was Georgia. a sad, yeah. sad day. Yeah. Sad day. Yeah. But at any rate, uh, uh, yeah, the Embassy Suites, you can't go wrong with that uh, uh, yeah. there because they got great breakfast uh, that comes with the room and, and, and happy, happy hour and happy evening. Hour. And, <laughs> happy oh, hour. man. Yeah, happy uh, hour. And every room is two rooms. It's a suite. It's not yeah, a right. little room, yeah. but you got two rooms, suite. Well, and, uh, we got to fill that hotel up right with there, Eastern but, people. Yeah, I, I hope we have a good turnout. Flight attendants be a new and uh, every, everybody around. Everybody, uh, everybody. Line. Yeah. Okay. We'll even take old old Mike Scott if he wants to come down and hold for us. <laughs> I'll buy you a beer, Mike. Come on down. <laughs> I'll yeah, buy you it, too. <laughs> it wouldn't take too much well, twisting of my arm, you know. Well, it's, <laughs> it's getting too uh, deep in here, so let's put the airplane on the ground. <laughs> Put the hip boots away for a while. There you go. Captain, as usual, be sure to tune in again next Monday, April 1st, when America's favorite way to fly returns to the cyber wave and um, the radio show. We also will hear from me again uh, when I say, holy smokes and holy blue Sunoco. (laughs) The people seem to enjoy that exclamation we also hear me uh if if you want to tune in won't you join us with this we sign off by playing a little lawrence welk music mr producer if you will good night jim Good night, guys. Thanks so much. Happy birthday. Hey, let's ride the golden falcon hey. out. Happy birthday, Neil. Yeah, happy Thank birthday. Thank you so much. Happy birthday, Jim Hart.
the one Happy in the book. Happy birthday to all concerned. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> And happy preliminary happy birthday to Don. Yeah, Don. There you happy go, Don. Good morning. And I'm going to say this, Jim Hart. Good night, Eastern Airlines, wherever you are. We love you, Eastern. There you go. Thank you, Neil. Great host. Thanks so much. Great show. Captain Eddie, wherever he is. There you go. Now, till we meet.